can we cut that response out of the recording? That, that did not seem like this response I was looking for. So, you know, I would never do anything like watch television or something that, you know, like ungodly folks do. But if I happen to go buy a TV and it's on, I always make sure I turn it to like the Learning Channel or PBS, something like that. And I don't know how, I, so that's, that must have been what happened. But I saw this show and um, it was really interesting. It's called the Jerry Springer Show. Anybody see that? Yeah, pretty sure it was on PBS. Anyways, <laughs> if, if you, uh, how many of you have seen the Jerry Springer Show at some point? Oh, you guys are liars. Uh, okay, the rest of you, you can go to hell for lying. You should know that. Um, all right, so here's the deal, right? I can tell you about the Jerry Springer Show quickly. Um, they, they bring on a, a guest, He's, uh, his name is Bubba, you know, and he has on some overalls and a plaid shirt and, and a toothpick in his mouth, and in his case, toothpick is the right phrase, is not teethpick, and, uh, and he's got this uh, wife, Barbara Jean, and she's there with them, and they're talking a little bit about their marriage and, and all that kind of stuff. And then they go to commercial. When they come back, they introduce Beulah, who is Barbara Jean's sister or best friend or cousin or all three. And, <laughs> and, and, the, and, and Beulah's pregnant. And then the music kind of tense, intensifies and you realize that the accusation is about to be made that he's the father of this child and everything goes crazy and pretty soon there's hair being pulled and people wrestling and fighting on the ground. And that's essentially the Jerry Springer show. It doesn't matter which episode you watch, that's what you're going to see. And uh, if for some reason people are fascinated by it because, you know, half of this place wouldn't even raise their hand and admit they'd ever, ever seen an episode. And I question your integrity, to be honest with you. But, <laughs> but we all laugh at it, mock it, and act like it's a joke, but it has huge ratings. It has been on the air forever. People watch this stuff, right? Because there's something about a train wreck that is just hard to not look at, Right? And so if that kind of stuff interests you, if, you if you've ever found a train wreck like that to be interesting, then we have come to the right place in the book of Genesis for you. <laughs> because, because, you know, the first part where we were talking about creation and the beginning and God establishing things and we're getting some creation theology and doctrine in place and understanding how the world works and how God designed us and what it means to be made in the image of God and all that. Then we got on to the life of Abraham, or Abram as he's still known in chapter 16, and uh, in Abram's life, he, uh, let me just sort of recap it for you so you know where we've been going. We, we met Abram in chapter 11 at the end of the chapter. The beginning of chapter 12, Abram, who is a pagan, who is living among pagans, who knows nothing about the one true God, has an, a connection with the creator God. God comes to him, 
calls him and says, listen, I have a plan for your life. I want you to follow me. And as you follow me, I am going to bless you in unbelievable ways. But I want you to trust me and follow me. And I'm going to give you an heir. And from that heir, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from that great nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And there's a land that I'm promising you for your descendants for time and eternity. And you're going to be blessed in all these amazing ways. And so he takes off, he brings his nephew Lot, who he has responsibility for, and his family, and they take off and they begin to follow God. And, and in almost no time, they get to the promised land. They arrive in Canaan, they set up their tents, and as they're getting established in Canaan, there is a famine. The economy goes in the toilet. There's no way to make a living. He doesn't see how this could be God's plan for his life. And so he decides quite on his own that he is going to take off to greener pastures and he heads down to Egypt and he sets up shop in Egypt. But when he gets to Egypt, he tells a lie about his wife. The, the Pharaoh takes his wife as his own wife. And when he finds out he's mad, so he kicks him out of the country but not before he totally enriches him. The scripture tells us that Pharaoh gives him money, gold, uh, clothing, livestock, male servants, and female servants. And he makes him a rich man and he leaves Egypt and goes right back to where God led him in the first place, which is the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, he builds an altar and he worships and he says to Lot, You know, God has been blessing us so much that there's not enough room for us to dwell in the same place. So you pick where you want to go. Lot says, I'll take the good land down there where Sodom and Gomorrah are. I'll set up shop and make a fortune. You go to the bad area and and good luck to you. And Abram doesn't worry about it because he knows God has made him a promise. So he gives that land to Lot and he goes up to the other land, right? And it's not long before uh, there's a war in Sodom and Lot is taken captive and Abram has to put an army together out of his clan and go after uh, the army that took Lot and rescue him. He defeats that army. There's this great victory. God gets all the glory. He gets to meet the high priest and, and there's worship and there's victory and there's a parade and all of that. And everything is going great except one thing. It's been 10 years now since God called him. And he was 76 years old when God called him. So now he's 86. He's 10 years older than his wife, and he still doesn't have any kids. He's still waiting for an heir. And so he kind of calls out to God, and God appears to him and makes a covenant with him and reminds him and and confirms that he is indeed going to give him an heir. He just needs to trust him. He needs to obey him. And uh, God reinstates this promise with this sort of contract with uh, animal sacrifice and this covenant that they enter into. Now, Abram is known as the father of the faithful. But he is not known as the father of the faithful because he doesn't have a doubting problem, right? And we saw that. And it's not because he never um, does the wrong thing. And it's not because he understands everything God is doing. He is usually confused. He is usually disillusioned. He is usually, usually doubting. And he doesn't know what to do. Do you ever find yourself wanting, I mean, really, in your heart of hearts, wanting to trust God, 
But then looking at the circumstances and going, I'm just not seeing it. I just don't. How can I trust God? I want to do things His way, but at the same time, I'm scared. At the same time, I'm confused. It makes no sense to me. I'm doubtful. I don't think it's going to work out. So if you know what that's like, then you know what it's like to be Abram. Because it can be tough to follow God. Amen? Okay, so that's not just me. You found that to be true. It can be tough to follow God. Sometimes what you know God is calling you to do, you simply don't want to do it. Is that right? Sometimes what God is calling you to do or principles God is calling you to live by make no sense to you. And you, and you say, well, maybe that's good for somebody else or in a different circumstance, but for me in this circumstance, I need to sort of come up with my own plan and do it another way. It is tough to just faithfully follow God because he makes promises and he asks us to trust him, but he rarely tells us how it's going to go, right? And so we're trying to believe those promises and we're trying to trust him and we're sort of walking slowly behind him. And when he starts going in directions that make no sense to us, it is really tough to follow him. So we're going to see that in the life of Abram. Turn to Genesis chapter 16. First book of the Old Testament, right at the beginning of your Bible, book of Genesis, it means beginnings. And this is the beginning of our faith journey as Christians. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. I promise this is not an episode of Jerry Springer. <laughs> and just as a side note, before we tear this apart a little bit, as we pull back the curtain on Abram's life and kind of get a peek behind the scenes, I want you to remember who this guy is, right? Even today, Two-thirds of the world's population consider him their patriarch, right? E even today, he's one of the most influential people who ever lived. He is a hero to billions of people and has been for thousands of years. But as we pull that curtain back, what we're going to notice is the man that we see behind the curtain is anything but perfect. He does some crazy stuff. Remember when he told the Pharaoh that his wife was really his sister, right? And, and then he allowed the Pharaoh to take his wife as her own wife. What we're about to see him do makes that look like a reasonably tame decision. I don't want to turn this into um, marriage counseling here, but I want to just help my brothers out. This is just a note for you husbands, okay? Okay. Um, if your wife ever says to you, I want you to sleep with my best friend, don't do it. It's a trap. Okay? I'm just telling you this, right? Just so you understand. Um, you got to understand this situation as it's unfolding. It's a little bit like our lives and a little bit different. Um, this is thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East. 
At this time, and clearly I'm not defending this culture, but in this culture at this time, women have very little significance. And the significance that they have is their ability to bear children for men. And so in this culture, if you're a woman and you are unmarried, you're disrespected by everyone. If you're a woman and you're married and you have no children, that's even worse than being unmarried. Because there's some understanding that there's something wrong with you, the gods have cursed you, that, that what possible value can you have? You're just a drain on society. You're not presenting to your husband any children, any heirs to make his legacy great and so forth. That is the view in which they live. And so um, this practice of saying, hey, I'm barren so you can, you can have children with my maid and I will raise those children as my own was not uncommon because in order for that woman to save face and have any sense of dignity, she had to be able to raise a family. And so that's the situation Sarai is in. If a woman cannot have children, she was seen as having very little purpose, very little value. Now, of course, if they had been in our study of Genesis and they had read what it says in the first few chapters about how God created men and women in his image, and that's what gives us our dignity, then there would be no grounds for them misunderstanding this. But when you don't have a biblical worldview and you begin to just make stuff up as you go, you end up with ridiculous ideas that says like one gender has more value than another gender. I hope you know that's ridiculous. So... The interesting thing here, by the way, it says she, she gives him this offer, right? And then, and then here's the big thing. Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Now, here's the point for today. Never listen to the voice of your wife. <laughs> That's the biblical principle. I hope you got that. <laughs> I hope nobody wrote that down. Don't write that down. Scratch that out. Um, I have actually, on more than one occasion, listened to a preacher with a Bible in his hand stand here and explain that Abram's big mistake was that he listened to his wife. It says so right there, right? It doesn't say that his mistake was in listening to his wife. In fact, all throughout Scripture, we're told that a husband and wife are one, right? And they are to make their decisions together. That a husband is told over and over in Scripture to trust the voice of his wife, okay? He's not, he's, the mistake he made was not that he listened to the voice of his wife. When it says he listened to the voice of his wife, it means he listened to what she said. He took what she said and took her advice. Her advice was terrible. That was his mistake. It wasn't that he listened to a woman or he listened to his wife. It was that whoever he listened to gave him advice to sin, and he chose to follow that advice. And that was where the mistake was, right? So I'm going to just tell you, if I was writing the Bible, I would leave this story out because it's embarrassing. And, and if, we're, if we're supposed to respect this guy Abram as an example of faith, it's really hard to do that when you see what a knucklehead he is multiple times, by the way, in Scripture. 
Um, but as I said, he's not considered the father of the faithful because he was perfect. He's considered the father of the faithful is because he faithfully continued to walk with God even through it all. Think about how weird this is for him. His name is Abram, and that name means exalted father. His name is exalted father. So when people see him in the square, they, they call him by his name, Big Daddy, right? That's his name. Every morning he gets up, pours coffee into a cup that says, world's greatest dad. That's Abram. That's the meaning of his name. Just one problem, no children. So it's always rubbed in his face just by the virtue of his name that he has this promise that continues to go unfulfilled. He has all these promises, he has all these dreams, but none of it has come about yet. So before you judge Abram too harshly, let me ask you, what would you have done in this situation? I think this chapter is for every man, every guy out there who feels like his life is passing him by and he hasn't accomplished anything great yet. There's a, there's a phrase for that in our culture. What's it called? Midlife crisis, right? And, and it's so common that it has a name. And it is so common that when men reach a certain age and they begin to look in the mirror and, and the guy looking back at them is starting to look wrinkled, and his hair is missing, or whatever, <laughs> that he begins, to, he begins to sort of shrug his shoulders and sigh and go, I think it might be too late to be great. I think it might be, I, I, I don't think I'm going to reach my dreams. I don't think my life's amounting to anything. This chapter is for every guy who's ever had that thought. This chapter is for every woman who feels like she doesn't measure up. For every woman who feels like whatever society's standard is, she ain't it. For every woman who feels like somehow she doesn't have much dignity, that somehow she doesn't have much significance, that she looks in the mirror and goes, man, this is not the life I dreamed of. Whether she used to sit and dream of marrying Prince Charming and the guy she married is not. Or, or whether her career has just never gotten on track, or, or whether she's had multiple failed relationships, or, or maybe a child when she wasn't married, or, or maybe a financial challenge or whatever, to where she just senses that she's not good enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough, not accomplished enough, not enough somehow. This chapter is for those ladies. Because I'm sure Sarai is feeling guilty. She's the barren one. And by the way, in those days, they didn't have any kind of fertility tests or labs to go to or any of that kind of stuff. The assumption was simply this. If there are no children, it's the woman's fault. She's broken. And, and if the definition of successful womanhood is having children and she can't, She's a failure to her husband. She's a failure in her life. That is how she's seen. She, Sarai, is the barren one here. She feels like she's standing in the way of her husband's greatness. She feels like she's standing in the way of God's plan for the whole world. Think of the weight on her shoulders. This chapter is for every one of us who has ever tried to follow God 
but hasn't seen things work out the way that we thought they would, and who felt like it was time to implement a plan B somehow. Take things in our own hands. Help God out. This chapter's for us. Look at verse 3. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. This is, this is success. This is what Sarai hoped for. This was her plan. I'm going to give you this young lady. You're going to get her pregnant, and I'm going to have a family through her. She's pregnant. Ain't it great? But it wasn't. Because somehow, some way, every woman in this room knows how this went in their relationship. Right? Because they are now at odds with one another. We now have Hagar, who's beginning to show, and Sarai, who's jealous, I assume. We now have Hagar looking at Sarai and thinking, you know what? Uh, Maybe I'm a little above you in this whole hierarchy. Maybe I shouldn't be the servant. Maybe I shouldn't be the maid. I'm kind of starting to look down on this woman. And, And I'm sure there are these days when they're having these conversations and she's telling her, oh, I felt the baby kick today. Or she's maybe saying to Abram, hey, could you rub my feet? They're a little swollen. And Sarah is like, ah. This tension is building between them. And it says, Hagar began to despise Sarai. Now, remember, by the way, You don't have to turn back there, but it was just a couple chapters ago. Chapter 12. In chapter 12, he went down to Egypt, right? Did that whole fiasco down in Egypt. And he went out of that place with what? Money, donkeys, sheep, male servants, and female servants. This Egyptian maid is the result of his bad choice to go to Egypt and the whole fiasco that happened with his sin down there. You know, sometimes we just go, who got away with that sin? It's amazing how often we're haunted because we made sinful choices and never repented. And now he's literally bringing with him the baggage of his Egyptian trip. And part of that baggage is named Hagar. Are, this whole mess is a part of that Egyptian fiasco. Guys, let me just put it this way. Our goal in life has to be to honor God or, or to be pleasing to God rather than to get our plans to succeed. Her plan's succeeding. It's just outside of God's plan. And it's all turning in to a terrible mess. This was a successful plan B. Plan A didn't work. I never got pregnant. He's 86. I'm 76. Pretty sure this isn't going to happen. Let me intervene and help God. It's a successful plan B, but it's a huge failure. It led to broken relationships, 
ultimately to warring nations because we're going to discover later that she gives birth to a son whose name is Ishmael and he becomes the father of the Arab peoples. And they've been warring with the Jews ever since. Now, look at verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong be done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, and when uh, she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. So it's not just a problem between the two women anymore. This guy is caught in the middle of this, right? So on behalf of men who have ever been caught between two warring women, I just want to say oy vey, right? <laughs> but it, does, it might be your wife and uh, your mother, right? Or it could be your wife and your daughter, or it could be your wife and your ex-wife, or whatever the situation is. I don't know a man in the world that wants to be in the middle of that mess. And so, exactly what uh, you would expect happens. She turns on her husband, and she goes, this is your fault. Now, he has the, he has the, the recording of the conversation. He says, no, 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 let me play this back for you. You said this was a good idea. I didn't even suggest this. You said, hey, this beautiful young Egyptian girl, how about that? And I said, well, if I got it, right? And, and, and so, so he's trying to back out of the situation, but now she's mad at him. And so the whole thing is falling apart. And then, uh, so Sarai, she sinned, because she saw no other way to measure up, right? Abram sins by choosing to satisfy himself and take matters into his own hands rather than trusting God. And Hagar is treated as something less than human. And so now her dignity has been ignored. How did she come into relationship with these people? She was traded to them as a commodity, right along with the mules and the sheep. And she did what her boss told her to do. She, she's being treated like a piece of property. And so her dignity has been ignored. And now they're all turning on each other. But plan B sounded so good. Listen to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. When are we going to learn to trust God even when we don't understand? There's this great passage in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. I, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I leaned on my own understanding. That happens every time. My understanding is by definition flawed, Right? To compare my understanding 
to the understanding of the God of the universe who sees past, present, and future, who has all power, who is the creator, who knows all things, to compare my understanding to his and to say, Lord, I hear what you're saying. It's just I think you missed this one. I'm going to lean on my own understanding. How many times have I done it? I have ignored that commandment so many times. And it's never worked out well for me. Now, this one I want you to turn to because I'm hoping you'll highlight it, underline it, or something in your Bible. Go to Proverbs chapter 19. I love, love, love this verse. Proverbs 19, verse 3. Right after Psalms, you're going to find the book of Proverbs, kind of in the middle of your Bible. Go to the 19th chapter, and let me read you verse 3. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Let me, let me state that for you in like non-Bible terms, okay? What he's saying is, Every person comes up with some great scheme and follows their scheme. And when it fails, they turn around and point their finger at God. This is, the, this is common to man. All of us as human beings have this tendency to think we know best and to do what we think is best. And when we do what we think we should do and it doesn't work out, we turn and rage against God. We blame God for our failures. I, I, I didn't handle money well, never saved, did anything like that. Just, just cash that paycheck and live till the next paycheck. And then one day I got sick. One day I lost my job. One day something like that happened and there wasn't money to pay the bills. And I found myself getting evicted from my apartment. God, how could you let this happen to me? Or... or you know, I know what the Bible says about romantic relationships, but it's a very old-fashioned book. Times have changed. Things have changed. I think I'm going to do it my way. And then when there's brokenheartedness and pain and destruction everywhere, we say, God, I thought you were supposed to take care of me. We ignore the very clear teaching of Scripture, and then we turn around and ask God, how could you let this happen to me? Listen, Sarai's plan succeeded, and now she's miserable because of it. It happens every time. Trust me, I know from experience, and so do you. Now let's go back to Genesis 16. Look at verse 6. <laughs> she, she said to him in verse 5, hey, I think this is your fault. He says in verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. <clears throat> Leave me out of this. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. How harshly was she being treated? That she would think to herself, I am single, Egyptian, and pregnant with a mixed-race baby. I have no way to take care of myself. I, I guess I'll run away. How miserable must her life and her situation have been? That's where she found herself. So she takes off 
And, and um, she's being treated so harshly that she won't stick around. So now we have this situation. She's pregnant, but she's gone. She's probably got no chance of even surviving out in the wilderness by herself. And uh, the scripture tells us right, right in here, I think it's in verse 7, that she's, uh, she's on the road to Shur. Now, if you look at a map of the ancient Near East at that time, you'll see that sh- the road to Shur leads back to Egypt. So she's headed back. What else can she do? She doesn't know what else to do. And Abram and Sarai aren't speaking to each other. Everything has fallen apart and still no children. What a mess. But I have great news. Jesus shows up in the middle of our messes. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Oh my gosh, these three verses are so packed full of stuff. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. If you miss this, you miss the whole thing. This is not an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. And anytime in the Old Testament where you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord appearing to a person, it's always Jesus. Jesus' title is the angel of the Lord. Anytime it's, another, it's an actual angel, he's called an angel of the Lord. And, and so this phrase, the angel of the Lord, refers to pre-incarnate Jesus, Jesus before the manger, okay? Now, you say, I don't know, just one little word, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure, because when we get to the end of uh, chapter 16, uh, and she's interacting with the angel of the Lord, she says that he's God and gives him praise and worship of God, as God, and he receives it. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. And I just said, Jesus intervenes in the midst of our biggest messes. That's what we're seeing here. And and what does he do? Uh, Look how he greets her. Verse 8. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid. He knows her by name. And he knows her station in life. He knows what's been going on with her. And he's making that clear to her. Hey, listen, I know you. I know who you are. I know what you've been going through. I saw what happened in the tent. I know how you've been treated. I know what your sinful response has been. I know you, right? He, he knows her. And then I love his question. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? That's a great question. It's a really a good question for us to stop and ask ourselves from time to time. Because what he's trying to do is remind her of her path. He's trying to remind her of her circumstances. He's trying to say, listen, you've been on a certain path to get to this point. And now you're on a certain path and it leads somewhere else. And I'm just here to tell you, your plan B is terrible. It's not going to lead where you want to go. Now, remember, she was a slave in Egypt. She was traded to these people like a commodity. And she has done what her master told her to do. She's been robbed of her dignity in the process. And when she did get a little bit haughty, 
She was treated so badly that she's now running back to Egypt. And Jesus says, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what's been done to you, and I'm still here for you. He says, think about where you've been. Think about where you're going. How does this add up? What are you hoping is going to come out of this? This is a bad plan. So I want you to trust me, he says. I want you to go back to your boss and submit. This woman that's been treating you this way, this woman who who treated you like a baby-making factory and not a human being, this woman who forced you to sleep with her husband and then treated you badly, I want you to go back to her and submit. Listen, submission is always scary. It is never easy. But when you're submitting to God, what can mere man do to you? We need to remember this. Listen, I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it again. I think submissiveness is probably the singular most obvious mark of spiritual maturity. You show me a person who is spiritually mature, and I will show you a person who doesn't boss other people around, who doesn't think of themselves as more high than other people, who doesn't want to be in control of other people, who treats other people with dignity, who is willing to serve rather than be served, who is willing to come under the authority that God has placed in their life. You show me a person like that, I'll show you a person with spiritual maturity. I call submission the S word. It's the word none of us wants to hear. We don't like to be told that we don't get to have it our way, but we need to submit to somebody else. And yet, this is Jesus telling her to submit. And I want you to remember that Jesus is sending her back to submit to someone who hasn't been terribly safe to submit to. But what's he asking her to do? He's asking her to submit to him. And every time God places any of us under legitimate authority, government authority, Uh, spiritual authority, family authority, wherever God places us under legitimate authority, the argument is not about whether that authority is, is wise, whether that authority is right. The argument is about submission. And we don't like that. It's always scary. God's plan for your life, though, is plan A, even when it's scary. Every other plan is a disaster waiting to happen. I am so glad that Jesus is willing to chase us down in the midst of our biggest messes. I am so glad that he offers us a new direction, that he offers us a new sense of purpose, that he offers us a new sense of destination, that he offers us a new sense of hope. But we have to trust him enough to let his plan be plan A, and we have to be willing to throw out plan B. Even when his plan doesn't sound great to us. We have to remember who he is. You see, and, and this just hits between the eyes, but hopefully you'll forgive me. The change that is needed in your life is not a change in your circumstances. It's a change in you. You can run and get out of those circumstances, but here's what you'll find. Wherever you go, you will be there. 
Listen to the promise that God makes to her. Verse 10, this is so great. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Does that sound familiar? And that's just like the promise that he made to Abram. And then he says, verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you're with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. The name Ishmael means God hears. You will name him this because God has heard your cry in your affliction. I want you every time you say, hey, Ishmael, get washed up for dinner. Hey, Ishmael, pick up your Legos. Every time you mention Ishmael's name, I want you to remember God hears you. God hears your cry. God hears your prayer. God hears your need. The angel of the Lord is standing before her because God hears. I totally love that he encouraged her with these verses. I can't explain why he gives her the next couple verses. Listen to what he says, verse 12. Speaking of her son that's in her womb, he will be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of his brothers. The, the, the Hebrew word for to the east of is actually a very um, strange word. It means multiple things, and we're not sure whether it means to the east of or in defiance of. It could mean either one, but both apply in this case. So he's going he's gonna to be the father of a great nation, but he's going to be... Here's what he's saying. Your son is going to be a jackass. <laughs> That's literally what, he, what Jesus said to her. I'm pretty sure someone said that to my mom at some point. <laughs> and, and he's going to be fighting his whole life. He, his whole life is going to be marked with confrontation. He's going to be in defiance to his brothers. There's going to be problems for him his whole life. But that doesn't mean... He's telling her this because on those days when, he's, when she sees what's happening with her son, she's going to go, oh man, why did I listen to God's plan? And he wants her to know it doesn't mean that I don't have a great plan for your life and that I've left you and that I have, I'm, not, I'm not working on your behalf. Your son's going to be a jackass. But then it's so interesting because in verse 13, this woman, this Gentile slave, woman, pregnant out of wedlock, this lady, she is the first person, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, don't, you know, some of you scholars check me on this, I'm pretty sure the only person in the Bible who gets to give God a name. She names him. Here's, look at verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. See, it was the Lord who spoke to her. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. His name is a God who sees. She named him that. And his name, that name continues to be a name that is used for him throughout the Old Testament. She names him. You are the God who sees. You're not only a God who hears, but you're a God who sees. You're a God who is intimately aware of every detail of my life. You're a God who knows what's going on in all of my circumstances. You are a God I can trust. God had never lost sight of her, and she's seeing that now. 
Jesus had revealed himself to her and told her that he had a big plan for her life, and she decided to follow him. She decided to follow him and in so doing to submit to him and his plan A, as tough as that must have been for her. Look at verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. That is some Jerry Springer episode. (laughs) Everybody in the story is dysfunctional. Abram had lost his certainty about God's promise. He was cowardly in the whole thing. He had taken matters into his own hands. Sarai had given in to despair because of her own sense of self and self-esteem issues, and she did what she knew was wrong, took matters into her own hands. Hagar had been a victim. She had been used and abused. And yet, as soon as she got a chance, she just was filled with pride and lifted herself up over others. And she took matters into her own hands and took off. And together, they made a huge mess. But Jesus is not afraid to show up in the middle of your huge mess. That's where I first recognized him in my life, in the middle of a huge mess. A lot of you first recognized him in the middle of a huge mess. Because when everything is hunky-dory and the lights are bright and everything's going well, we don't have a tendency to look for God, do we? But it's in these messes that we make, in these broken times that we have, that we're susceptible to hear His voice and to recognize His presence. So what do we do when nothing is going the way we planned and everything is a huge mess? We turn to the God who hears. We turn to the God who sees. We submit to his plan A and watch what he can do with our mess when we submit to him. And some of you might be in the middle of a huge mess right now. Maybe you made the mess yourself. Maybe you're sort of an innocent bystander and it just got all over you. Maybe you're the victim of somebody else's abuse. But you find yourself in a huge mess right now. And the ball is in your court. You've got to decide what to do. How am I going to respond to this? I hope that today Jesus has made himself visible to you in such a way that you know he hears your cry. That he's made himself visible to you in such a way that you know he sees your plight. That he's made himself visible to you in such a way that you have to admit he's more trustworthy than you are. His plan A is better than your plan B. Or plan C, or plan D, or E. I think I'm on plan X to the 23rd power or something. And none of them have ever worked. It's just God's plan A. It's just God's plan A. And God is so powerful that even when we have chosen a plan B, and it's the kind of thing where we can't go back, right? She can't go back and not have her maid sleep with her husband. They can't undo this situation. But God intervenes in their blown plan B and says, watch how I can make your plan B into my plan A. But my plan A always involves the S word. You're going to have to submit to God. Jesus says, I see you. I hear you. Why not stop running and submit to me? I love you. I am am ready to handle whatever you'll put in my hands, the Lord says. 
And all these dysfunctional people in the story, there's only one hero, and it's Jesus. He's the one that can be trusted in the midst of your mess. So I leave you with this thought. The ball is in your court. What are you going to do? Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who hears. We thank you that you're a God who sees and that you are not crippled by inability in spite of your hearing and seeing, but that you are also a God of all power. That you're a God of great love, perfect wisdom, and, and uh, all strength. And so, God, it's, it's to you that we now bow. We kneel at your feet. We ask you to intervene in our messes. We ask you to make plan A the story of our lives. Father, if there are any of us who are feeling like maybe it's too late, we've, we're, our life has passed us by, there's no time for greatness. I pray that you would show us plan A right now. Father, if there are any of us who think that maybe we don't matter and we don't have much to offer and our dignity has, has just been robbed of us, I pray, God, that you would show us how precious we are in your sight. God, if there are any of us who have just gotten caught up in a situation where we have been the one abused, and now we're living with the consequences, I pray that we would know a God of all empathy and comfort. For you too hung on a cross. You too know what it is to be abused. You too know what it is to be reviled. And we thank you, God, that you offer us a great plan A. Help us to live in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.